Well, this morning we're continuing looking at the purpose and calling of the church in this larger series on what the Bible says about the church. The first uh, purpose and calling we looked at two weeks ago, which we identified or I identified as the chief calling and purpose of the church, and that's worship, the exaltation and glorification of God in worship. That's our chief calling. Last week, we highlighted that the purpose and calling of the church is to edify the saints, that we are actually supposed to be concerned with the spiritual well-being and the spiritual growth and the sanctification of each one of us, that we're not to be left alone or to view it merely as an individualistic practice, but you are to care about your neighbor's spiritual growth, especially in this church. And today, we come to consider the purpose and calling of the church, and that is to also evangelize the world. The church exists and is in this world to evangelize the world. Now let me give you a few verses right at the beginning here to try to, number one, set our tone and our attitude, maybe our direction, but also to expose the attitude of the Apostle Paul. I want you to try to, try to pick up on his attitude towards evangelism. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17. There's just a few verses here, four of them. He says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. What a wonderful text of Scripture, isn't it? My sole objective, my sole calling, is to preach the gospel, and not in my own strength, or my own eloquence, or my own wisdom, or with my own persuasion powers, so that I don't detract from the power of Christ. Because Paul believes that the gospel is sufficient enough to convert men. That God uses the gospel to convert men and women. It does not take our eloquence. Same letter, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 16. He says, For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no grounds for boasting, because necessity is laid upon me. What does he say next? Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. In Romans chapter 1, verses 14, 15, and 16, he says, I am under obligation, both to Greek and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. And so I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Why? Because I am not ashamed of the gospel, he says. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. At the end of that letter, Romans chapter 15, verse 20, he says, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. That's just a snippet of of Paul's view of evangelizing the world, of of taking forth the gospel, advancing the cause and mission of Christ. And he says, I'm singularly, solely sent to preach the gospel. And not in my own power, but in the power of the cross of Christ. In fact, necessity is laid upon me. I'm in danger and in trouble if I don't preach the gospel. He goes on to say in Romans, I'm under obligation. I'm not ashamed. I make it my ambition to preach the gospel of Christ. Now the question comes, are those statements and that attitude only for Paul, the apostle? Or are they also for the church as a whole? Should the whole church emulate Paul's attitude there? In recent generations, anytime we talk about evangelism, it almost solely and exclusively is focused on individual efforts. And that's not a bad thing. Individual Christians are responsible to share the gospel, aren't they? And great efforts have been made to help every member of the church, every Christian do that, fulfill their calling of sharing the gospel. Those are good initiatives. That's a good focus. It's a great calling. In fact, we can even say in every generation, too few Christians share the gospel. And so we must encourage each other individually. But this morning, my 
purpose and point is less to focus on individual evangelism and rather to show you that it is to be our corporate identity as a church. That evangelism is to be our whole singular body, our whole desire and purpose and work. That yes, evangelism, taking the gospel to the world, is individual, but it is also something that's to be done hand in hand with your brothers in Christ in this room. Striving, as we'll see later, together for the faith of the gospel. In other words, it is the identity of the church to take the gospel to the entire world. And therefore, we must define ourselves by that very identity. In this whole series, we're trying to understand what God says about His church. And we're trying to define ourselves by what God says in His Word about His church. It's very important for us to know who we are. And any time we talk about who we are or how God views us or what God's commissioned us to, we have to understand that evangelism is at the forefront. And if it's at the forefront, then collectively for us, it must be a priority, right? It, it must drive us. It must be a work that we do together. It must be something we commit to. Now, before we go on, let's define what evangelism is. What is evangelism? Well, the late J.I. Packer in his book on evangelism and the sovereignty of God, he opens his chapter by highlighting that there is confusion and disagreement among evangelical Christians on what evangelism actually is. And you wouldn't think so, he highlights. You wouldn't think that would be the case. But it is the case. And on page 41, he tells us why he thinks there's so much confusion around what evangelism is, even in the church. He says, the root of the confusion can be stated in a, in a singular sentence. It is our widespread and persistent habit of defining evangelism in terms not of a message delivered, but of an effect produced in our hearers. He makes a major point there and a very accurate point. The danger that we always seem to succumb to in defining evangelism is that we're essentially looking in the wrong direction to define it. And we're essentially looking in the wrong direction to determine its successfulness or not. Packer, I agree with, rightly points out and says, we look to the effect produced in our hearers and not in the message being delivered. So as we begin to understand what evangelism is, let's begin by looking in the right direction. Let me give you three things to help us define evangelism. Number one, it begins with the faithfulness of the believer to share. So evangelism is less about the effects produced in the hearer and more about your faithfulness to share the message. Another theologian from the Great Britain country, John Stott, who's also passed on, he once said, to evangelize does not mean to win converts, but simply to announce the good news irrespective of the results. To evangelize does not mean to win converts, but simply to announce the good news irrespective of the results. God has not called you and I to save people, has He? He's called us to be faithful to share the message of the Gospel. Evangelism is about being faithful to step up and boldly share the message of Christ. To bear witness to the saving reality of the Gospel. Another way we might put it is success in evangelism is not defined by responses, but by faithfulness in planting the seeds. So, if I share the Gospel with somebody and they don't respond and believe in Christ, does that mean I'm less successful at evangelism? No. It means I've been faithful to share the message. 
If I share the message and someone is converted, does that mean I've been more successful? No. Because evangelism is a matter of faithfulness to share the message. Why is that? It's because the results are entirely dependent upon God, aren't they? God is the one who awakens sinners. God is the one who rebirths the human soul. God is the one who converts. And when we begin to look the other way, when we begin to think that there's something in our presentation, something in our efforts, something in our background, something that we do that converts people, then we begin to define evangelism wrongly. Evangelism, by scriptural definition, is a very, very, very simple process. And it starts with us being faithful to share the message, leaving the results entirely up to God. As Paul said in that Corinthians passage, I don't want to speak and preach with eloquence because it's not about my ability to convert people. It's all about God converting people. We do the only thing that we can begin to do, and that is to open our mouths and share. Secondly, and this goes hand in hand, evangelism deals with the message itself which is the Gospel of Jesus Christ. So it's not just being faithful to share, but it's being faithful to share the right Gospel rightly. There are many people who are faithful to do what we might call evangelism, but they're of a false religion. And their evangelism is of no good. And if our evangelism is to be of any good, not only must we be faithful, but we must be faithful to the right Gospel. And just like with evangelism, we might would assume that all Christians agree on how to present the gospel and what the gospel is and what elements of the gospel need to be included in evangelism, but they do not. Even among Orthodox Christians all throughout church history, they have had to spend ample amount of time wrestling through the definition of the gospel and how it is to be presented. Which isn't a bad cause because after all, it is the most important message of all time, isn't it? So let me define it just in quick points for you. Maybe in a way that will be memorable for you. To understand the gospel, we can look at four main areas. And many of you have heard this before. We look at God, man, Christ, response. Those four headings guide us in our sharing and understanding of the gospel. And we start where we must start, where uh, all things ultimately start, God. And who is God? Our Creator. And as our Creator, the supreme authority and the supreme power and ultimately the supreme judge, isn't He? And we are His creatures. We're held accountable by Him. He's worthy of respect. He's worthy of allegiance. He's worthy of obedience. And most notably, He is holy, isn't He? And He's righteous. And He's good. And then man is created by God. Created good in God's image. But what is most important to know about humanity? We sinned. We disobeyed God. And not just disobeyed God in our actions, we disobeyed God in our heart. We broke allegiance with Him. We rejected and rebelled against Him. And that sinful tendency, that sinful nature, was implanted within us by our first parents. And it's been propagated and continued within us by our own actions, hasn't it? So, you have no right to just look back at Adam and Eve and say, why'd you do that? Now we're all doomed. Because in the same coin, you have doomed yourself. And furthermore, not only have we sinned, and not only have, have we rejected God, but we are held accountable by Him. In other words, we have to answer to Him. We've broken the law of God. A law that is perfect, and good, and holy, and righteous. 
A law that was put in place for our good by God who loves us. And at every point of it, we have spat on it and rejected it and broke it. So we're condemned. Let me, let me flip over to John chapter 3. There's a few points I want to bring out in John chapter 3. Jesus brings out a few of these points. In verse 17, He says, God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes, verse 18, whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is what? Condemned already. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Humanity, apart from God, in their natural state, sinful state, is already condemned. At the end of this chapter, John the Baptist says, in verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. Notice how he phrases this. But the wrath of God remains on him. You are under the wrath of God if you're not in Christ. It's not that the wrath of God is coming, though it is in one sense. But it's that you are already underneath it. And the only thing that prevents God's full wrath from being poured out upon you now is that He hasn't quite, in His mercy, tipped the cup fully over yet. But one drop from the cup of the wrath of God is more than any of us could ever bear. The fact that we are sinful and have sinned against this God is no light matter. It is deserving of an eternal punishment. But the Gospel doesn't stop there, does it? Christ is sent. Jesus is sent. And Jesus tells us why He's sent in John 3.16. Because God so loved the world. Because God so loved the world, He gave His only Son. That whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Christ was sent as both man and God. Fully man fully God, and He lives this perfect life. Not just to say that He did it, but to live it on our behalf, right? To be righteous where we're not righteous. To obey where we disobeyed. So that He might apply that righteous life to us. And then He was strung out on a cross. And, and the worst part of the cross is not the nails, and it's not the splintery wood, and it's not the mocking of the Roman soldiers. It's that He drank the wrath of God meant for our sin. And then He was buried. But He also resurrected. So He's alive today. And His living means we will be living. His resurrection means that Christians will be resurrected. We serve a living Savior, a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that He is living no matter what men may say. Our Savior has risen and in rising has declared victory over death and victory over sin and says, since I am alive, you who are united to me in faith will also be alive. And then He ascended to the right hand of the Father until He returns again to judge the living and the dead. And at the right hand of the Father, He hasn't left us alone, but He sustains us. And He intercedes for us. And He mediates for us. And that dictates a response. How does this Gospel be applied? How is it applied to my life? Tell me. Repentance and faith. Which means I turn from myself. I turn from my sin. I turn from the world. That's repentance. And I turn to Christ for salvation. I turn to God through Christ for salvation. And I place my faith in Him. That I actually do what Abraham did. And I believe God's promise. Which is 
Anyone and everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So what's the gospel, church? It's God, man, Christ response. God created us. He's a holy, righteous God. We rebelled against Him and sinned against Him. Yet God so loved us, even in our sin, even before we had anything to offer, He sent His Son to die on the cross for our sins and resurrect from the dead that we might have life in Him. And that dictates a response from us. Faith and repentance and obedience. We often tend to isolate parts of the gospel or stop short, don't we? Or neglect certain parts of the gospel. But church, that is the full gospel. And it goes from the beginning of time to the end of time. All of God's redemptive work is the truth of the gospel. So we must get the gospel right and we must rightly share it. We must tell people as uncomfortable as it is, and as much as this world may mock us and reject us, we must tell them of God's supreme, absolute, eternal holiness and man's sinfulness and subsequent condemnation and Christ's love to die for us on the cross and resurrect for us from the grave. And we must tell them the necessity to trust in Jesus alone for salvation. That's what it means to evangelize. To share that message. Not just to be faithful to speak about God, but to be faithful to share that full message. That doesn't mean we don't speak up if we don't have enough time to get through all four points. I've got 30 seconds here, so I'm just not going to say anything. Sometimes the best thing we can do is to say something about Christ. Something positive about Jesus. Sometimes the best we can do in the moment... It's to invite our friends, invite our family, invite our co-workers to church. Sometimes it's to just say, I'll be praying for you today. But let's not kid ourselves. True evangelism is sharing the full gospel. And that means raising our standard of understanding. If we are going to be gospel sharing people, then it, it's not enough to just say something positive of Christ, though that's good. It also means we talk about God, humanity, Christ, and their need to respond. I tell you that to say, strive for something higher. Strive to share the full gospel. Now thirdly, what it means to, to evangelize. And this is important. So don't, don't tune me out yet. Evangelism relies not on ourselves, but on the Holy Spirit. Evangelism is done through our mouths, with our bodies, using our minds, but it is not done with our strength. When we do it with our strength, we fail. But surprisingly, when we trust the Spirit of God to enable us and strengthen us and empower us, we find ourselves succeeding in being faithful to share this right gospel message in spite of ourselves. I am convinced that it's rarely, people, people don't share the gospel, it's a rarity that they don't share for some lack of understanding or lack of ability. I think the reason people don't share is because they don't have faith and they don't submit to the Holy Spirit's prompting. You can share the Gospel. You are fully capable. God has saved you with that message. And you have everything you need in Christ to share it. You have the intellectual capability. You have the understanding. You have the ability to speak with your mouth. The issue is not ability. The issue is one of submission. The issue is one of faith. The issue is one of reliance. And the Scriptures call us to rely on the Spirit to take the Gospel to the world. That's partly why Jesus says in the Great Commission these encouraging words at the end, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. 
It's partly why in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the Holy Spirit is the one who gets the credit for enabling the disciples to be witnesses to the world. That's why we get this drastic change in the life of Peter between his denial of Christ at his crucifixion and this awesome sermon on the day of Pentecost. What's the difference? It's the Spirit of God enabling him. You and I cannot effectively take the Gospel to the world in our own power. But when we rely on the Spirit, God carries us and uses us in ways and at places and at times that would surprise even us. So, what is the definition of evangelism? Well, let us define it as faithfully sharing the Gospel of Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit, irrespective of the results. Isn't that marvelously simple? And frankly, easy? I know we all struggle with fear. And it's hard sometimes to speak up. We'll talk about that in a moment. But I want you to see the ease and the simplicity of the definition. It's faithfully sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit, irrespective of the results. That's a liberating definition in my mind. Because the results are up to God. Don't let the enemy burden your heart with things like that. The, The power comes from the Holy Spirit. My task is to be faithful in sharing. And I know the Gospel. Not only do I know the Gospel, I'm a Christian. I love the Gospel. I just need to submit to the Spirit. Trust His leading. And speak about it. Now, the next question for this morning. How is this the mission of the church? This is evangelism. So how is that the mission of the church? Because as I said at the beginning, we've all been conditioned to view it as an individual kind of work. And probably as you're listening already, you've applied it individually. I hope so, to some degree. But we're trying to see that this is a church-wide work. Well, let's take that definition. Faithfully sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit, irrespective of the results. And let me tell you, that that is to become the new norm and identity of the church. We identify ourselves in many ways through that definition. That's our calling. That's our purpose. That's our corporate responsibility to bear witness to. The church is missional. And she's supposed to be active in her mission. But I say it that way to tell you when I say the church is missional, I mean that to be an identity statement. It's who she is. It's who we are. Not just what we do, but who we are. And who we are dictates what we do. We're active in our mission. Greg Allison, one of my one of my professors in seminary wrote a wonderful book called Sojourners and Strangers, The Doctrine of the Church. And I've, I've referenced it before, but I don't know if I've ever shared the title with you. He points out that the church are not only divinely called as God's people, but they are also divinely sent. And Jesus says that to the disciples, and, and we can carry that extension out to us. In John chapter 20. John chapter 20, verse 21. Jesus says to them, After His resurrection, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent Me, even so, I am sending you. We are not only a divinely called, divinely gathered people, we are a divinely sent people. And we're sent together in unity and in harmony, as we'll look at in a moment, and that makes us who we are. Now, how do we 
actively go forth? How do we corporately evangelize? Let me give you four more things of how we do this as a church. How we do this collectively. Number one, we defend and we proclaim the truth of the gospel. As a group of people here in Weatherford, Oklahoma, it is our mission and our task to defend and proclaim the gospel in Weatherford, Oklahoma and in the world. Galatians chapter 2, we see this in Paul's mindset. Talking about false teachers in verse 4 and verse 5, he says this, Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that, for this, for this reason, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. In other words, Paul's sitting there and he's confessing the church is the keeper of the gospel. And she guards it and she defends it and she proclaims it. And we don't yield. We don't yield to the threats of society, to the ostracization of culture, to the hostility of people in our own lives, or maybe family, friends, co-workers, even maybe one day soon the government. We don't yield in submission so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved. One of the great, most glorious realities of the church is that God has invested her with the authority and the privilege of taking care of the gospel. So we defend and we stand up for and we proclaim the truth of that gospel. I want to turn you to a few more verses in Acts chapter 4. We've referenced this re- recently as we walk through the book of Colossians. Acts chapter 4, what I call the Acts 4 allegiance. Peter is again speaking. He and John have healed a man in chapter 3. In chapter 4, they're being drugged before the religious leaders. They're being questioned. And Peter in verse 8 rises up, filled with the Holy Spirit, and said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, then let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by Him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has now become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I'm jumping over to verse 18. They called them and they charged them, Peter and John, not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must be judged. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. John Calvin once said, like a dog barks when his master is attacked, so I too must speak up about the gospel. That's exactly what Peter and John are saying here. We cannot but help speak about the gospel. Regardless of the hostility. Fast forward to chapter 5, there is hostility. Verse 28, the religious leaders, the same ones, are still speaking to John and Peter. And they say, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. And how does Peter respond? Verse 29, Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The church sometimes must stand 
and defend and proclaim the truth of the gospel, even in the face of seemingly unendless hostility. In chapter 4, when they were threatened, they were released. They said, we, we cannot help but speak of what we've seen and heard. And then they go back to the church. And in verse 29, they're praying. They say, now Lord, look upon their threats and grant to Your servants to continue to speak Your Word with all boldness. The church must find her allegiance to God alone and pray for boldness to defend and proclaim the truth. Secondly, how do we corporately evangelize? We stand as a light in the world. Jesus shares an illustration in Luke chapter 8. One that by extension can be applied to the whole church. In our existence in this world, Luke chapter 8 verse 16 No one, after lighting a lamp, covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Take care then how you hear, for to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. We find a very unique correlation to this in the the seven letters to the church at the beginning of Revelation, I believe it's chapter 2, the church at Ephesus. And Jesus has a lot of positive things to say about the church of Ephesus. And then He says, but I have this against you, that you have forgotten your first love. And if you do not repent, I will take away from you your lampstand. The Scriptures use this lamp, this light metaphor in connection to the church as bearing witness in a broad, bright, global sort of way. The church stands as a light in the world. Which means we are often countercultural, aren't we? We're distinct. We're different. We do not look like, taste like, smell like, act like the world around us. We are aliens and strangers and sojourners and pilgrims in a world that is no longer our home. A man named George Hunsberger. Remember that name just because it's cool. Hunsberger. He says, the church makes it a missional priority, which means, which means a gospel priority. The church makes it a missional priority to be a distinctly Christian community in contrast to the perceptions and practices of its surrounding society. It is a a gospel issue to be distinct. To go on, going on to speak about Western churches, Western culture, society, America, Europe, all those things. He says, no more is the church the chaplain to an assumed Christian society, nor the moral glue that holds things together, nor the guardian of civility and duty. And Greg Allison adds, rather the church is the missional body commissioned by its head, Jesus Christ. Which signifies that the church is to recognize its responsibility to be a countercultural reality in the midst of and as a challenge to its own context. Words that resonate with me, but let me try to simplify them. It does us no good to advance the gospel to look like the world or act like the world or be like the world. What really advances the gospel is to be the light of Jesus Christ different from the world. You know how many people, how many denominations have compromised on convictional truths in the name of gathering crowds? Denying doctrine and practicing less than pure methods to try to expose people to something of God. That is not what leads people to the gates of glory. 
The church is a corporate evangelizing machine when she stands out like a sore thumb in her society and says, we identify with Christ, not with this world. You know, I tell people who are entering into the secular workforce all the time, I say, be yourself, be faithful to Christ, let it be known, and one day, it's inevitable, one day, a co-worker will have a problem in their life and not know anywhere else to turn but to you. And they simply say, would you pray for me? You know how often that happens? And they say, would you pray for me? And all of a sudden, the gospel opportunity door has been swung wide open. Looking like the world gains us nothing in advancing the gospel. Standing as a light, put on a lampstand to be seen by everyone, while it may incur hostility and negative attention, ultimately serves the purpose of glorifying God and advancing the gospel. Number three, we display the transforming power of Christ in our fellowship. How do we evangelize the world? We display the transformative power of the gospel in our fellowship. In John chapter 13, verse 35, Jesus says, For the world will know that you are what? My disciples, right? By the love that you have for one another. There's to be a distinctly Christian connection and relationship between brothers and sisters in Christ that exemplifies belonging to God. Something supernatural about the way we interact. So that it's unmistakable in Jesus' words to the world. You must belong to God. Just as when Peter and John are before the council and they say these are common uneducated men but they've been with Jesus. So too, the way we interact should be something uh, similar. Those are strange people. And they don't live like the world. But there's something unique about them. Not only that, not only the way that we love each other does that advance the Gospel, but the, the actions of that relationship advances the Gospel. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, Paul says, and notice, it sounds like he's talking individually, but the, the word you here is a plural word, and he's talking about the church. So he's writing to this whole church, talking about this whole church, and he says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the Gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you or gifted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Paul writing to this church and he says, church as a whole, Philippian believers as a congregation, let your existence be worthy of the gospel. And one way that that looks like is in your relationships together to strive side by side together for the faith of the gospel. The imagery Paul is alluding to here is locking arms and holding hands and moving forward as one unit. So we evangelize the world as a church when we build the kind of divine relationships that come through Christ and act upon those relationships in such a way where we say, my brother and my sister are never alone in their evangelistic efforts. I am right there with them. You can be rejected all over this world for speaking about Christ. But when you come here, you will be celebrated. We go forth with the Gospel together. Real quickly, our fourth way that we evangelize with each other in a, on a church-wide corporate level is that we actively engage the world not with politics and not with social projects and not with social initiatives, but exclusively with the Gospel of Christ. 
so that whatever political initiative we're engaged in, whatever social project we're engaged in, whatever social initiative we're engaged in, we are engaged in it exclusively to advance the gospel. Matthew 28 is the great commission of our Lord to the church. A man named G.C. Burkhauer, also a wonderful name, says this about the Great Commission. He says, It is not to be understood, not to be understood, as an accidental commission. A command that could not be expected from the reality of the church. In other words, he's saying, Jesus didn't give this commission thinking we wouldn't succeed. He gave this commission expecting us to succeed. Right? We're given the Great Commission not to just plaster it on our walls as beautiful decoration but to live by it. And what does it say? Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. In verse 19, in the Greek, there's only one imperative verb there. And we can translate verse 19 based on the context as we do. It's, your translation's right. That's not what I'm trying to say. But the imperative verb there in verse 19, the sole imperative verb, is make disciples. That's the only command. In the Greek, it actually says going, make disciples, baptizing, teaching. Our commission is to go make disciples. People who follow Jesus Christ. Who hear the Gospel, repent and believe, place their faith in the Lord, and live their lives for Him. And that's not an accidental commission. That is the God-ordained means of converting the whole world. The church going forth, making disciples. Acts chapter 1-8, we've referenced already. The Spirit enables us to bear witness the end of that verse, to the ends of the earth. It's never bad to read Scripture, is it? Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You will receive power, Jesus says, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. One might think this is solely for the apostles, but when Jesus qualifies that ending with the end of the earth. He's speaking to the church. First John chapter 2, verse 2 tells us that Jesus... Well, again, it's never bad to read Scripture, is it? First John chapter 2. Better to read Scripture. Verse 2. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Not that everyone is saved, but Christ's sacrifice is sufficient enough to save everyone. How are they to hear that Gospel, Romans 10, unless they are sent to preach it? So the scope of this mission for the church is the whole entire globe, isn't it? Matthew 28, all nations. Acts 1.8, the ends of the earth. Revelation 4 and Revelation 5. Show us the picture of the throne of Christ with, every, with a person from every tribe and language and nation and tongue gathered around worshiping. Ephesians 3.6, Paul says, I'm, I'm sent to the Gentiles. 2 Corinthians 10, 15, and 16. Romans 15, 15-20. All talk about the Gospel going... Beyond limits, beyond to, to new lands, Paul says in Romans 15. New areas. Areas of new influence. Acts chapter 8, we see that this is even God's intention. He allows Saul to approve of the execution of Stephen. Saul who will be Paul. And then ravage the church, it says in, in Acts 8 verse 3. Ravage the church, dragging men and women out and committing them to prison. God permits that to happen so that verse 4 will be true. Which says, and they were scattered. The Christians were scattered 
and went about all the world preaching the Gospel, preaching the Word. God scattered His church to be a a machine that takes the Gospel. There's so many verse references I want to read to you. So many things I want to point to. I want to talk about our motive. And Paul, Paul in Romans 10 verses 1-4 through 4 says, It's my heart's desire and prayer to God that they be saved. For I bear them witness that they, they have a zeal for knowledge. They have a zeal, but not for God. Not according to knowledge. For thinking they can attain to their own righteousness, they deny, reject the righteousness that Christ has attained. Paul writing, thinking, talking about his own countrymen. My heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. I want to talk about our method. How do we share the gospel? We do so verbally. In 1 Thessalonians 2 4, Paul says, We speak the gospel. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 19, he says, Pray for me that I may know how to speak the gospel, that the words may be given to me to speak the gospel. Because the gospel message is a verbal message. Romans 10, they don't hear without preaching, and faith comes by hearing. So many things to point out, church. To bring you to the conclusion that evangelism is the work of the church. It's the identity of the church. It's the way God has ordained the gospel to be guarded and sent. The question is, and give me just a minute or two, please. We are talking eternal truths here, aren't we? Let me wrap up with just a few more questions. The first one being, is that the identity of our church? Honestly, is that our identity? If evangelism takes such a priority in the Scriptures and is of such importance to God, it, then is it important to us? Is it our identity? Or do we just have a few among us that share the gospel? If even that. Are we taking the gospel forth? Do we stand as a light? Are we in our relationships displaying the power of the gospel? Do we stand out from our culture? Would people in our community look at us and associate with us the unmistakable message of Christ. And why, if not, is it because they don't know we're here? Or they associate us with something else? These are hard questions, but these are questions we must stand up and face, aren't they? We don't just sit under the preaching of God's Word for entertainment. We want our lives to be molded and conformed by it. And if the church's purpose and calling is to be evangelistic, is that us? I'll put before you this morning that I think the culture of our church must change. And I think we must all stand at the same level footing, the same level ground and say, we must be an evangelistic people. And I say that with faith that my brother and my sister are saying the same thing. And that I'm not alone. We cannot. To honor our Lord, we cannot be a people who are simply comfortable. Comfortable with the way we do things. Comfortable with our attendance, comfortable with status quo. We are called by God, commissioned by God, to be a missional people, aren't we? Which means we must sacrifice. You and I must sacrifice for the Gospel. 
Which means we might even need to suffer. Our reputation might need to suffer. Physically, we might need to suffer. If we're going to be a missional people, we have to practice self-denial. Life isn't about you. Your job isn't about you. Your hobbies shouldn't be about you. Every breath is about something greater. Let me, let me read you one last passage. 2 Corinthians 5. Verse 17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us, gave us, the church, the ministry of reconciliation. Which is, in Christ, God is reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. I should have just camped out on this passage, right? Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Earthly representatives for Jesus. God making His appeal through us. God has ordained that we are His mouthpiece, His vessel for the Gospel. If we do not share, how will they hear, church? We implore you, plead with you, beg you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. This is who we are. And because of it being who we are, this is what we do. We are people who celebrate and delight in the gospel of Christ. He has saved us. And we want to share that message of salvation. Here's what I'm going to ask you this morning. You've been wonderful. I'm going to ask you to keep being wonderful. And in this last song when we stand and sing, if God has stirred your heart in any way to increase and practice evangelism, to repent, to be a gospel-sharing person, I want to ask you to come and kneel down this morning and pray. And I want to ask you to do that, not for show, but as a public way of confessing before your brothers and sisters that God is working in my heart about sharing the Gospel. It's good for us to see God working in our hearts. In the hearts of each other. You don't have to disclose everything to each other. But if you'd be willing to come down here, kneel during this last song and pray between you and God, it would be a testimony to your brothers and sisters that God is leading me. Why don't you join me in taking the Gospel? Father, we praise You because You brought this Gospel to us through the efforts of other brothers and sisters. You brought this Gospel to us. And You stirred us and You converted us and You saved us. And we believe. Now, Lord, help us to take the mantle up and be an evangelistic people. Not just in name, but in passion and sincerity, taking the Gospel of Christ to our community and beyond. We do this not by our strength or ability, but by Your Spirit. Help us, O oh God, please. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.